Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective, live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, the African Union Summit ends with a call for strong collaboration among countries. Zimbabwe's war veterans criticize President Robert Mugabe and South Africa's ruling ANC policy conference enters its final day. In economics news, Kenya reviews mining laws as industry struggles to grow. And in sports news, South Africa beat Botswana to reach Kasafa Cup plate final. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musam. Five civilians have been killed and 18 others wounded in an exchange of fire outside Tripoli's Matiga Airport. Local sources say gunmen from Souk al-Juma district traded rocket fire outside the airport and near a beach on the opposite side of the airport. A woman and four children were killed and 18 beachgoers wounded. There are conflicting reports about the reasons of the fighting. Some sources claimed it was a revenge attack by armed relatives of a man killed by an armed group stationed inside the airport. Tanzanian authorities have ordered the detention of an opposition lawmaker for insulting President John Makafuli. Kinondoni District Commissioner Ali Hapi ordered police to detain Halima Mdi, a lawmaker from the main opposition Chadema party, and keep her for 48 hours pending criminal charges. Magafuli warned opposition leaders on Sunday against reckless remarks and ordered authorities to take action against any opposition leader who incites violence. More than 10 people, including university students and a lecturer, have been charged in court over the past few months with insulting the president via social networking platform like WhatsApp. South Africa's ruling ANC wants the government to continue to engage with the monarchy of Swaziland on the need to democratize. This is one of the proposals from the party's National Policy Conference in Johannesburg. The International Relations Committee's chairperson, Miriam Sahotse, says they want the issue of Swaziland, where human rights are allegedly being committed, to be referred to the Southern African regional body, SEDEC. The commission reaffirmed the 53rd National uh, Conference Resolution that the ANC should continuously engage with the monarchy to democratize uh, Swaziland. And I think we've also reflected that the commission called for you know, the ANC to engage with the monarchy to release all political prisoners, but also to allow political uh, parties to operate freely. Saudi Arabia and Arab allies that have cut ties with Qatar will be holding talks in the Egyptian capital Cairo on the Gulf diplomatic crisis. The meeting comes after Doha said their demands were impossible to meet. 
The four Arab nations, which also include the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain and Egypt, accuse Qatar of supporting extremism, a charge which it denies. They've given Qatar an extra 48 hours to meet the ultimatum after an initial 10-day deadline passed on Sunday. Qatari Foreign Minister Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdurrahman Al-Tani handed an official response on Monday to Kuwait, which is mediating in the dispute, but its contents have not been disclosed. And finally, the Ugandan government has told public servants to dress decently, warning women not to show their cleavage. The BBC's Africa editor, James Copnell, details the East African country's new dress regulations. The circular is precise. Women should not wear flat shoes unless there is a medical reason or show their cleavage or navel or have brightly coloured hair or wear short skirts or dresses. Men are told to choose dark colours and not to show up to work in open shoes. The circular is an attempt to implement existing but largely ignored rules. Public officers, it says, have continued to dress in a manner that does not portray a good image of their work. It is not immediately clear why the instructions have been issued now. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. beset by so much human suffering, poverty, and deprivation. It is in your hands to make of our world a better one for all. From July 18, raise your hand and make a dedicated effort to keep helping others in any way you can. Make every day a Mandela Day. It is in your hands to make a difference. It's 8.06 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on this Wednesday, July the 5th, the 186th day of 2017 with 179 days left in the year. In our top story, the African Union Summit has ended in Ethiopia after two days deliberation on issues pertaining to peace and security, economy and Africa's desire to achieve its development agenda. 2063. Koleta Wanjohi reports from Addis Ababa. The African Union Summit has decided that Africa should speak with one voice on issues that are of importance to the continent. On issues of peace and security, the summit decided that a special high-level forum would be held to discuss South Sudan's peace building. On Somalia, troop-contributing countries of the African mission to Somalia, AMISOM, reaffirmed their support to ensure that despite the financial difficulties affecting the operation of the force, they will keep it alive. The summit also made some deliberations on the ongoing border dispute between Djibouti and Eritrea. A conflict looms in the border of the two countries after Qatari forces that were stationed at their border withdrew without warning on 14th June. While speaking in French and his speech translated, Chairperson of the African Union Commission, Mohamed Musafaki, explained. I sent a mission on Djibouti, to Djibouti who uh, went to, to the field and uh, made the decision to send the Commission of Peace and Security to Asmara, 
after the summit. We are calling the parties to calm and serenity, and we will implement the mechanisms that are enshrined in our texts within the African Union. The summit deliberated on the report on the recommendations of reforms of the African Union. Chairman Mohamed Faki explains further that it was decided that more time be given to member states to understand the aspect of levying 0.2% on goods of their choice as a means of contributing to the finances of the African Union. There are as technical aspects when it, when it comes to implementing this decision. This is why a committee of 10 ministers of finance have been set up, has been set up in cooperation with my representative, my special representative, Dr. Kaberuka, it has been decided to hold a new meeting, another meeting of this committee of 10, and then broaden this committee to all African uh, ministers of finance in order to see into the ways and means, because a number of countries have difficulties uh, in this respect, and we have to take a, a into account the specific nature of their, uh, these difficulties. The chairperson of the African Union for the year, President Alpha Conde of Guinea, whose French speech was also interpreted, explains their deliberations on UN reforms and association of Africa with other partners. Regarding now the reform of the Security Council, you know that Africa is speaking with one voice in this respect. We have a committee of heads of state made up of the president of Sierra Leone. And with the point now is what we, what we have to do now to be heard, to be listened to. Therefore, we're still analyzing, considering the issue to see what concretely we can do to make sure that the um, permanent members of the UN Security Council listened to our claims and our requirements. President of Liberia, Ellen Johnson Salif, bid farewell to the African Union Summit because this will be her last time to attend as a president. Colette Onjohi for Channel Africa Radio in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Zimbabwe's war veterans are bitter with President Robert Mugabe's failure to deal with Minister Jonathan Moyo over social media attacks against senior party officials. Professor Moyo, the country's Minister of Higher and Tertiary Education, is known for his Twitter posts in which he is allegedly picking fights with almost everyone in the ruling party. Simon Muchema has more from Harare. Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe has been challenged by war veterans to deal with divisive Professor Jonathan Moyo's behavior or risk losing respect. War veterans made the call in the capital on Monday when Professor Moyo picked a fight with the Army General Constantine Chiwenga on social media. Moyo, known as a cybernaut, has of late picked fights with various ministers, including Finance Minister, Army General, Deputy Presidents, as well as the President himself in what some regard as attempts to destroy the ruling party from within. Although Mugabe has on a number of occasions openly castigated Jonathan Moyo, the 93-year-old leader appears clueless on what action to take against his minister. Christopher Mutangwa, leader of the Zimbabwe National Liberation War Veterans Association, accuses Moyo of being a sellout and if Mugabe fails to deal with the situation, 
he too shall lose a respect. The same standard which is applied to Jonathan must apply to everybody in ZANU-PF, must apply to everybody who is Zimbabwe. How can somebody go and steal and then is protected? How can somebody attack the army general and nothing is done against him? How can somebody attack the president, the vice president of the republic? How can somebody defy his own president and is not dealt with? No, that's not the ZANU way. That has never been the, the ZANU-PF way. That has never been the Zipra and Zanla way. It has never been like that. So at some point, this thing has to stop about the behavior, the wayward behavior of Jonathan. Muchangwa added. He has literally run amok, shredding every rule book in the country, uh, taking on everybody left, right, and center. And that ministers, of course, Jonathan Moyo. He has taken on the army, he has taken on the judiciary, he has taken on the Speaker of Parliament, he has taken on the Minister of Finance, he has taken on the Vice President of the Land, he has taken on the War Veterans. He is literally uh, in a brawl, you know, he's like a mad dog, in a, you know, brawling with, left, with everybody left, right and center. Jonathan Moy joined government to destroy ZANU-PF from within, Muchangwa said. Jonathan joined the government in order to help destroy Zimbabwe's economy. You can see that for the, na- for the past 13 to 14 years when he has been in government, the economy has been continuously been going down. He has been at the center of an ideology which is against investment, which is against Zimbabweans uh, using the wealth of their country to make themselves successful. This is the G4 ideology. Moyo behaves like a mad dog, as he lacks discipline, war veterans leader alleged. He has none of that discipline, he has none of that background, but uh, suddenly he has found himself at the apex of power, executive power in the country. And because he lacks that background, he behaves like a mad dog in a manger. Meanwhile, political analyst based in the capital, Enes Mzengi, said Mugabe is highly unlikely going to act on Jonathan Moyo, fearing the death of the ruling party. No, I think it's indicative of the factional fights within Zanubia. Jonathan Moyo is attacking Vice President Munangagwa, who the war veterans are saying should succeed Mugabe. So it's a case of uh, factional wars within Zambia. Mugabe, Mugabe is well versed that this is a factional war. And he, he, for the sake of the unity in his party, he doesn't want uh, to advantage one faction over another. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. It's 8.15 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Now let's go back in time to today in 1990. South African anti-apartheid activist Debo Khodzietzi Mashinini died under strange circumstances in Conakry, Guinea. Mashinini was hospitalized with multiple injuries, apparently sustained following an attack, and he died a few days after his admission into hospital. That was today in history in the year 1990. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
South Africa's ruling African National Congress wants stronger legislation that will help enforce stricter border movements between South Africa and other states. This came out during the media briefings on the work of the party's commissions at its National Policy Conference in Johannesburg yesterday. The proposals at this conference must be agreed to by branches and will be ratified by the party's elective conference in December. Noma Bolani has more. National Executive Committee member David Mashla will unpack the various issues that fall within the Peace and Stability Subcommittee, including border control, crime and corruption. A key issue in the policy is about dealing with illegal migration and cross-border activities. We also had to discuss the issues of our ability to say what should we do differently to strengthen the management of our borders, which is part of territorial integrity. The use of technology there in terms of our border systems, the issues of dealing with ethical conduct and corruption in some of the officials that are there, but also to deal with the issues around illicit flow of goods that you'll find in our borders. And we say that what else do we need to do differently, but also working with the neighboring state. An ANC assessment also found that of the 160,000 prisoners in South Africa, about 6,400 are foreign nationals. Maslabo says they highlighted this fact to dispel the generalized rumor that most of the crime in the country is committed by non-nationals, but also raised the matter to explore the deportation of some of these foreign prisoners. And this is an important analysis that we've done, is to say our prison from an overcrowding point of view, the burden to the fiscals, why should we do different? Remember countries in terms of our international agreements and treaties. We can be able to do prisoner exchange. And this commission has said that for petty crimes, we want these people to go back to their respective countries so that they can be hanged there and save their sentences. While those who have committed serious crimes, heinous crimes like murder and others, we want them to serve their sentences here in South Africa. Meanwhile, the ANC says it's reaffirming a 2012 conference resolution to withdraw from the International Criminal Court. According to the chairperson of International Relations Commission, Miriam Sahatse, the ANC is committed to the withdrawal. They they reaffirmed the resolution of our 53rd um, uh, uh, conference in Mangawung in 2012 that we should withdraw from the ICC and that South Africa must ratify the Malabo Protocol on amendments to the protocol on the statute of the African Court of Justice and Human Rights and encourage the speedy operationalization of the African Court of Human and People's Rights. Sahatse says another proposal is that the ANC must continue to engage with the monarchy of Swaziland for the country to democratize. She says the commission wants the issue of Swaziland to be referred to SADC. The commission reaffirmed the 53rd National Conference Resolution that the ANC should continuously engage with the monarchy to democratize Swaziland. And I think we have also reflected that the commission called for um, you know, the ANC to engage with um, the monarchy to release all political prisoners but also to allow political uh, parties to operate freely. That report by Zaline Merrington and Norma Bolani in Johannesburg. 
Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonye in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbero Munjorere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. It's 8.21 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The Newcastle Magistrates Court in South Africa's Guazul Natal province has adjourned the matter against EFF leader Julius Malema to tomorrow as the defence says they are filing papers in the High Court challenging his prosecution under the 1956 Riotous Assemblies Act. Outside the court, Malema said he stood by his statement that people should occupy vacant land. He maintains that in his defense, he will be using the Freedom Charter. Nongululego Lope reports. The start of the trial of EFF leader Jules Malema in the Newcastle Magistrates Court was delayed. It turned out that Malema's lawyer, Tumim Gwena, had informed the states that they are filing papers in the High Court to ask the court to declare the Reuters Assembly's Act invalid. The proceedings, which did not last for five minutes, resulted in the matter being adjourned outside the courts. EFF leader Jules Malema said they believe the charges are politically motivated. That uh, we are challenging uh, exactly the same charges brought against us. We think that uh, they are just malicious. They've got no intention to serve any form of justice. When we challenged the earlier you know, charges uh, because they were using some unconstitutional act, they then had to go and find some alternative because it is you know, uh, political charges. So so we think that uh, they are wasting a uh, court's time and uh, we want uh, the High Court to declare those, uh, I mean, these charges unconstitutional as well, yeah. Malema still firmly stands by his statement. Yeah, our call still stands. The people must occupy land. That's what the Freedom Charter says. If any court finds me guilty, then it will have to declare the Freedom Charter an illegal document. The Freedom Charter says people will occupy the land wherever they choose to do so. And uh, I'm just repeating what the Freedom Charter says. And uh, by repeating what the Freedom Charter says, I repeat what uh, the generations before us said. So it's not me inventing new things. That's what the struggle has always uh, been about. So I think that uh, they don't appreciate at the extent of uh, finding me guilty with that statement, what are the possible implications on the historical documents like uh, the Freedom Charter? Because we'll use the Freedom Charter a lot in our defense. We'll use Madiba, we'll use Tambo. Meanwhile, the organization that opened the case against Malema, the National Conservative Party said in a statement that Malema's remarks can lead to hatred between black and white South Africans. They were also in court. The case has been adjourned to Thursday. 
The South African National Editors Forum, SANEF, has filed an urgent court application against the Black First Land First organization and its founder, Andilim Kritama. SANEF has asked the Johannesburg High Court to interdict Mkutama and his movement from harassing journalists, editors and commentators who have been reporting on state capture. This follows a protest outside the house of editor Peter Bruce last Thursday, where another editor, team, Tim Cohan, as well as analyst Karima Brown, were also intimidated. Didaba Dotezi reports. Members of the Black First Land First movement staged a protest at Peter Bruce's home, demanding that he write about white monopoly capital. They also told him to immediately pack his bags and go to Europe, as they want to occupy his home. Several journalists have allegedly been under attack from BLF, which accuses them of being racist. A journalist, Barry Bateman, who has also been threatened by the BLF, says he will never stop exposing what he believes is corruption by politicians. This has got very little to do with these allegations of monopoly capital. It's more to do with uh, the kinds of articles that myself and several other journalists have been writing about the Gupta family, which emanates from the Gupta leaks. Um, What has happened here is clear intimidation in order to prevent us or to dissuade us from continuing writing articles which expose uh, corruption and the likes and and various relationships between the Gupta family and politicians. Sanef has now tended to their cause to protect journalists. Chairperson Mathazi Gallens says the purpose of the targeted harassment of these journalists is to keep allegations of corruption and state capture out of the public domain. We have noted that uh, since the warning letter we had sent with Nkitama and BLF, they have instead escalated and increased the number of journalists that they are actually threatening. We were also quite alarmed that um, they were also disregarding uh, the Minister of Police's warning that police will actually investigate the matter. Instead, we've seen them continuing on this orchestrated campaign to try and silence reporters, editors and commentators. Black First Land First says it will continue to target what it calls racist white journalists. The organization's leader, Andy Lemnitama, says that they will oppose Sanef's court application. We certainly are going to oppose this application. It is a wrong-headed application and it is calculated to take away our democratic right to protest. There is no law in South Africa or in the Constitution that says racists have a right to be racist. This is really about racism and covering up of white monopoly capital corruption and protecting black people as the only people who are corrupt in this country. We have certainly targeted white journalists. Black journalists, including our sisters who work for SANEF, are just victims of the same white system. The South African Human Rights Commission has called on the BLF to immediately cease intimidating and harassing journalists. The Human Rights Commission has also condemned the threats by BLF to protest at the homes and places of worship of members of the media, HRC spokesperson Gail Smith. The Constitution guarantees the right to freedom of expression, which includes freedom of the press and other media. And the Commission is adamant that a free press is a cornerstone of our constitutional democracy. So all attempts to threaten or intimidate the media is an attack on our democracy. Our Constitution guarantees the right to freedom of religion, belief and opinion. So also... 
to protest at people's places of worship, especially members of the media, is an infringement of this right. Police Minister Figile Mbalula has warned that those who march to journalists' homes to intimidate them will be arrested. We will never agree when people attack journalists in their homes. We are very soon going to arrest them because that concerns my citizens for their right to freedom of speech. The day we allow people to march to houses of our children whilst they work in their own workplaces, that will be wrong. And when they march to Peter Bruce, we must hit them hard. When you come to my house, I finish you. South Africa's police minister, Fikile Mbalula, ending that report by Didaba Tsodetsi. Let's go back in time to today in 1989. The African National Congress leader Nelson Mandela met with South Africa's President P.W. Bota to begin negotiating the end of apartheid at Dainhase in Cape Town. At the time, Mandela was still imprisoned at Victor Fastier after he was transferred from Robben Island to Paulsmoor in 1982, then to Victor Fastier in 1988 till 19. Today in history, in the year 1989. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye line ya simu, hivi sasa, najunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre de soleil. Kia Makande Mbalelwa Kina Miriam Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África, a voz Renascença Africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Sochitika Mu Africa. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. It's 8.30 Central African time and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussart. Tanzanian authorities have ordered the detention of an opposition lawmaker for insulting President John Makafuli. South Africa's ruling ANC have called for the downgrading of the South African embassy in Israel due to the ongoing conflict with Palestine. And Egypt's parliament has approved an extension of a nationwide state of emergency until the end of September. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. Untransformed newsrooms, evolving technology and socio-economic issues are some of the factors that make people believe what is termed fake news on the Internet. This emerged in a discussion of fake news at Grahamstown in South Africa's Eastern Cape province. Fake news, which can come from satirical websites, propaganda websites or social media campaigns, was discussed by media practitioners and academics yesterday. Mtebisi Mkwina filed this report. 
How genuine is the white monopoly capital that is being championed by Andilem Nutama's party, Blackland First? Should the Gupta-owned TV channel be closed or not? And did American President Donald Trump's inauguration had more attendance than his predecessor, Barack Obama? These are some of the underlying questions raised in a panel discussion focusing on fake news and misinformation. One of the panelists, former editor of Mail and Guardian, Verashni Pillay, believes the cutting of staff by some media houses contributes to sloppy journalism, as the few journalists that are left do not necessarily research as they rely on online to source their stories. Pillay elaborates. All these um, conspiracy theories that these fake news propagandists around the Guptas are disseminating about white monopoly capital wouldn't have happened if there wasn't an element of truth in it. Just young people of color in this country are tired of the inequality. They're tired of where we're at. So you see these little morsels of truth that these propagandists latch onto and they attach their agenda to it. And one of the things that they've hit on is the kind of anger around inequality in our country, the kind of anger about but just how unbalanced things are. And, and this is a fact. It's a fact that we are living in a very unbalanced country. Advocate Mark Oppenheimer says the people behind disseminating fake news are using historical events like apartheid era. The frightening thing, this idea that you can target those that are responsible for disseminating truth in society and saying they're not to be trusted because they're white monopoly capitalist journalists. And as Rashni points out, there is a view that is held among people that white people hold too much power, um, that they're fair targets. And so what you do is you play with that discontent and uh, you then generate massive amounts of propaganda. Rhodes University digital media lecturer Kayla Rue has advised people on how to spot fake news website. Look at the URL, the web address. What is it? It might even um, be crafted to look quite similar to a trusted news source's URL, but it's not. Look at the URL of the story. Look at the quality of the writing. Um, you can use a tool online called uh, Who Is. Just Google Who Is, and this will help you to look up the domain, uh, the, the registered details for any website. So who is it registered with? So for a South African news site, you'll probably find that they're registered with a local service provider, and you can get contact details, and you see that they are a legit news source. The panelists believe media houses that report misinformation should be held accountable. It should not end with the written apology only. Narendra Modi is set to become first Indian Prime Minister to visit Israel. The trip is a public embrace of the flourishing defense ties which his predecessors hid in the shadows. The Indian leader will not travel to Ramallah, seat of the Palestine Authority, in a hint to Muslims back home of his priorities. Rana Sen has more. Once a pariah, now brothers in arms, Israeli spokesman Mark Sofer reflected on the changing narrative just ahead of Modi's three-day trip to the Jewish state. It's a work in motion that the relationship has basically metamorphosed in the last 25 years from a completely negative relationship. When we all remember that it was written in Indian passports valid for all countries except Israel, by that time South Africa had become kosher, so we were the only pariah state in the world. Where we are now in this relationship just 25 years later, which is really a blip 
in history, overawing in many respects the relationship that we have between us in all fields. Does it mean that we can't do more? Of course it means you can do more. But Israel's ambassador to India, Daniel Kahneman, warned there'll be no space for Modi to mediate in the regional peace process just as much as India disliked Western powers meddling in Kashmir. What we have indicated throughout the years without answering direct question because this could be sounding like a yes or no, in general Israel prefers to have some peace process or political process with its neighbor uh, to be a bilateral bilateral and i think that saying it to an indian audience is something that would be very much understood in india modi will not travel to ramallah a customary stop for visiting leaders trying to maintain a balance in political ties india's ambassador in tel aviv pawan kapoor tried to give a reason this visit is israel and so i think that is a, a clear point uh, i think the fact is that we've explained uh, to our palestinian friends that this is a visit to israel and i think they are comfortable enough with that we have reached a stage of political maturity where we think we can deal with both our friends in Palestine as well as in Israel but keep the relationship independent of each other so we've dehyphenated the relationship as it were India at present is Israel's biggest arms market but its spokesman Sofer said the Jewish state was looking at much more than just military sales discussing our defense partnership or relationship with any country including that the one we're talking about now so that's something that we won't be discussing in any way and no country in the world does that and I don't intend to change that policy and what I will say is that strategic partnership means a lot of things there are a lot of aspects to security between countries including food security the need to feed and to provide water and sustenance to 1.3 billion people that is called food security and strategic partnerships can certainly take that form as well on the cards are the sales and production of missiles drones and radar systems under modi's signature make in india drive but israeli companies fear their technologies transferred to indian soil could fall in wrong hands this is anna sen reporting from new delhi Doctors Without Borders or MSF has reiterated its call for clear strategies and strong political will towards providing a quality HIV response in Western Central Africa. This comes as African heads of state met this week in Ethiopia's capital Addis Ababa to endorse the emergency catch-up plan led by the joint UN program on HIV AIDS UN AIDS to accelerate HIV treatment in the region. MSF's out-of-focus report released last year in April identified numerous barriers that prevent the wider scale-up of HIV treatment in the region where over 4 million people are in need of life-saving antiretroviral therapy. Natalie Cartier is the HIV policy advisor and advocacy officer for MSF. So during the African Union summit, the African governments, they decided, you know, to under the acceleration plan for the region to scale up access to treatment for people living with HIV. As NSF, we welcome this initiative and we are encouraged the dynamic around it. But now we want to see actions on the ground and uh, we also want to stress our message on the long-standing factors that people are facing in this region and that prevent the acceleration of the HIV response. What are some of the gaps and obstacles in HIV testing and treatment in this part of the continent that concerns you most as MSF? So in this region, you have 6.5 million of people living with HIV. And out of those people, 
there's 4.7 million that don't have access to treatment yet. So this is a huge number of people living with HIV without any treatment. And there, people, they are facing huge barriers to access testing and treatment. It's extremely difficult for patients to get access to care, just to be tested and then to be put on treatment and to remain on treatment for life. People, they have to pay high cost to get access to care, to need to pay consultation fees, to get access to laboratory exams, they need to pay for specialization care. So it's a lot of money for those people, and sometimes they have to choose between, you know, getting food or getting the treatment. In those countries, you know, HIV services are mainly provided in big cities, in the capitals, which means for people that, you know, they have to travel long distance to get tested and to receive uh, their treatment every month. Why do you think the overall HIV response is not given the attention and investment it deserves? Most of those countries in these regions, you have a low HIV rate if you compare to southern or eastern Africa. And this has resulted in less attention and investments by uh, the governments and the donors. That explains why, you know, the region is behind. You have also to consider that uh, many countries there, they face other competing health challenges. You know that Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone, you know, they had to face and Ebola epidemics, and you have other countries that face regular recurrent crises like CAR, for example. So those reasons can explain why, you know, you have less attention to HIV. So how has this situation affected work in MSF-supported HIV hospital centers? Well, as MSF, we see a lot of suffering. You know, many people, they arrive at the hospital very sick. For example, in a supported hospital in Conakry and Kinshasa, our staff, you know, report patients arriving in such advanced stages of HIV that a lot of them die within 48 hours of admission. We are witnessing this suffering. People that we take care of, they tell us strong stories. Some of them, they didn't know about HIV. Can you believe it? Like, you know, so, and then some of them, they just didn't have money to access to care. You have some people that didn't have access to testing and treatment and others that they had to stop taking their treatment due to the high stigmatization or due to lack of money. And what happens is that they waited to be sick before seeking for care. So that's why, you know, they end up in a MSF-supported hospital in very bad conditions. Despite the grim picture you just painted of the HIV situation in the region, are there any encouraging moves that governments there have taken to ensure that patients have access to life-saving treatment? I think so. The fact that the acceleration plan has been put on the agenda during the African Union Summit is a very encouraging message from African governments, which shows that there's a willingness to tackle this issue and make it as a priority for the region. You have some governments that have adopted some national policies, like DRC, for example. They decided to implement a policy that helps to get closer treatment to people. They call this model a community treatment distribution. They call it PODI. It's a model managed by an association of patients that give treatment to people and then also they provide HIV testing. You have some positive trends. Apart from that model, how else can these countries better their HIV response? And are there lessons to be learned from strategies implemented in other regions of the continent? Yes, there are some lessons that can be learned from strategies that have been implemented in southern and eastern Africa. 
For example, in this region, nurses can prescribe treatment and lay workers can provide HIV testing, counseling people, and they can support adherence. And we know that this has helped a lot to scale up access to testing and treatment. And uh, we have also new models of care implemented, you know, piloted in Western Southern Africa. You know, I talked before about the community treatment distribution in, in Kinshasa, in DRC, but we have also in Conakry a strategy where you give six months treatment refilling to people. Like this, they don't need to come to the clinic every month. This has been piloted in Conakry, and it's working very well. There's other experiences in DRC, Cameroon, and Burkina Faso with the collaboration of uh, civil society organizations. You know that civil society organizations, they also play a crucial role in uh, HIV response. In those three countries, they play a role in monitoring HIV services. This experience is called Community Treatment Observatories. So it's been run by civil society organizations. So you have some good experiences piloted in Western Africa that could be scaled up in the region. And that was Natalia Cartier, the HIV policy advisor and advocacy officer for Doctors Without Borders, speaking to Elizabeth Lidicha. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye line ya simu, hivi sasa, najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre du Soleil. Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África, a voz de renascença africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Sochitika, mu África! Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. It's 8.45 and our economics update up next with Tabitha Lohoko. Thanks, Lulu. South Africa aims to collect 98 billion US dollars in taxes during the 2017-18 fiscal year that ends in March. The South African Revenue Service says this extraordinary revenue target has been set in a strained economic environment and will see SARS put in extra effort to continue to bolster the national purse. The credit rating of Africa's most industrialized country has been downgraded to junk by two of the three biggest rating agencies. Dubai Bank depositors will start receiving their refunds this month, two years after the institution was placed in receivership. The Kenya Deposit Insurance Corporation says it will start paying the bank's depositors and creditors part of the money owed to them. KDIC has started liquidating the lender's assets. The Dubai Bank's liquidation agent says it will commence the payments later this month, valid for one year. 
The Zambia Public Procurement has so far captured more than 10,000 suppliers on the electronic government procurement system. The EGP was introduced in the country last year with the aim of reducing costs, save time and promote transparency in public procurement. ZPPA Director for Human Resource and Administration, Ida Chella, says 10,105 suppliers were registered on the GEP system as of the 30th this year. Congolese officials say the Democratic Republic of Congo is in talks with Russian state-owned bank VTB over potential investments worth as much as 1 billion US dollars. Africa's top copper producer has been hit hard by low commodity prices in recent years. It has only enough foreign currency reserves to cover about three weeks of imports and its franc currency has lost half of the value in the past year. Switzerland's financial watchdog Finma remains in touch with the Credit Suisse over its role in arranging loans for Mozambique state-owned companies. This is after an independent report concluded it was unclear how the money had been spent. Credit Suisse, Switzerland's second biggest bank and Russian lender VTB have come under scrutiny after negotiating loans totaling some two billion US dollars with three firms owned by Mozambique, one of the poorest countries in the world. The U.S. dollar trades at 13.20 in South Africa. It's at 10.22 in Botswana and at 9.12 in Zambia. It's a trading at 0.77 to the British pound and at 0.88 to the euro. Gold $1,223, platinum $913 an ounce. Brand crude oil is at $49.82 a barrel. I'm Tabisolo Hoku for Channel Africa. So I figure that Wayne Rooney sent uh, sent back home, not joining um, the UK team to um, the English, the English to, yeah. to the US. What's going on? What happened? No, well, Wayne Rooney has, has had a problem since before the end of the season uh-huh. with Manchester United. So he hasn't been playing. So he needs a team. So he needs to be home. So I think there is a little bit of unhappiness with him being mm. in the English team away from home because he wants to move from Manchester United. So I think he needs to make those ma- changes to finalize those of, 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 of season. season. Yeah. Okay. Give us an update. First up in our sports update this hour, we begin with cricket news. Proteas, momentum wicket keeper Trisha Chetty says the team are taking the confidence from their 10 wicket win over the West Indies into what will be their toughest challenge yet in the ICC Women's World Cup against England in Bristol today. South Africa's middle practice session was disrupted by rainfall, forcing the team to have an indoor net session, but did not put a damper on the team spirits. Chetty admits that England will most likely be the toughest match they will have played so far, but she believes the team is up for the challenge and are mentally and physically ready to go. And in football news, sad news, South African football has been left to mourn another young talent after junior international right-back Ntutugo Khadebe died in a car accident. His club has confirmed 
Belgian side UPEN confirmed the news on their website on Tuesday evening, offering condolences but shared details of the accident except that it occurred in South Africa. Khadebe arrived at UPEN in 2012 and helped the club into the top flight for the 2016-2017 season. He played for South Africa at the under-17 level and was also in the frame for Owen Dagama's under-23 side that played at the Olympic Games in Rio de Janeiro last year. The club says the team... The staff, supervisors, all employees and supporters of Kas Yupen lost a good friend. On to athletics, Poland is the first country to have arrived in Kenya for the upcoming IWAF World Under-18 Championships. The championships will start on the 12th of July and end on the 16th of July. Poland has 31 member delegation including 10 officials. Poland will be joined by Argentina before Bahamas and Chile teams land on Friday. Oman being represented by one athlete has been acclimatizing in Kenya for weeks. The local organizing committee chairman, Mwangi Mute, has confirmed the arrivals. The, the, the only country that is officially coming to Kenya is Poland that is arriving today. Uh, the other countries, many other countries are already in Kenya, but they are here informally. So we cannot declare that they are here because they made their own arrangements. They checked themselves into camps. So for those ones, we just declare when they report to the camp. But Poland is the first country to report. And there can be few things in tennis more embarrassing than being beaten in the first round of a Grand Slam tournament while ranked number one in the world. It is a painful memory that is still fresh in Angelique Kerber's mind, having suffered that misfortune at the French Open just five weeks ago. It was a good match, a good first match from me. I mean, I was enjoying to being back on the center court. And I think, um, yeah, to playing first rounds in the Grand Slams are always tough, especially with um, my Paris first round match that I lost. So that's why I was actually just thinking about point by point and um, trying to finding my rhythm during the whole match. Luckily for her, she proved the naysayers wrong with a 6-4-6-4 win over American qualifier Irina Falcone. Later, Wimbledon fans with center court tickets suffered the disappointment of seeing the opponents of title contenders Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic retire early in their matches. Second seed Djokovic advanced after Martin Kleesen gave up after 40 minutes when 6-3-2 love down. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really odd that Roger's result and my result more or less was the same when it really happened. And we had a little joke about it in the, in the locker room and saying that we should maybe play a, a practice set on the center court just, just to uh, have, you know, the crowd stay. But, you know, they had another match moving to center court, so... And finally, with cycling news, sprint ace Mark Cavendish is pulled out of the Tour de France hours after suffering a broken shoulder blade in a horror crash at the end of the fourth stage. Cavendish had gone to hospital after world champion Peter Sagan elbowed him into the railings by the side of the road at the finish in Vettel. Sagan was kicked off the tour for his part in the crash, but his Bora team stated they had appealed against the decision by the Tour's race commission. Later yesterday, Cavendish's Dimension Data team posted a picture of the British rider on Twitter with his arm in a sling, revealing that he was pulling out of the tour. That's a sport news this hour.
Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Recapping our top stories in Africa rise and shine at the Sawa, the African Union summit ends with a call for strong collaboration among countries. Zimbabwe's war veterans criticize President Robert Mugabe and South Africa's ruling ANC policy conference enters its final day. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Kabu, producers Pumuzo Ramagadza and Jane Rabutata, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. And taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to southern Africa is Wusim Tlongo with a song titled Dingy Ding.
morning and welcome to Channel Africa, broadcasting to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. First, let's cross over to the news desk for the latest news from Africa and abroad. In the headlines, South Africa's ruling ANC calls for the downgrading of the country's embassy in Israel due to the ongoing conflict with Palestine. Saudi Arabia and Arab allies to hold talks in the Egyptian capital Cairo on the Gulf diplomatic crisis. And Tanzanian authorities order the detention of an opposition lawmaker for insulting President John Makafuli.